we are continuing our series, the title of which is on the screen. You've got questions, God has answers. You need some notes each week. And we will be looking at the question, can anyone be sure that he's going to heaven today? And that's the sixth of eight topics that are part of this series. And if you missed any of the prior five, then those are recorded on our website, so you can listen to those, and you can download the notes for those there as well. But the next two next week are going to be about hypocrites in the church. That's a question a lot of people ask. Why are there so many? And then the last one will be, isn't the church just a man-made institution? But today, can anyone be sure he's going to heaven? We'll get into that in a moment. But will you turn to look at the back cover of your notes? And there are just some things there I want to call your attention to. Next Sunday, the 11th, is our next baptism. That'll be at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We invite and encourage all of you to come to be an encouragement to those who are being baptized. We also have a celebration dinner after the baptism for which we need food items. And we have a sign-up for those food items. And that you can do on the kiosk that's in the resource center out this back door and across the hallway. So make a note to yourself to do that before you leave today. And then three weeks from today, during this hour, we will have completed this series. And the following week, the 25th, we're going to start a four-week series that I'll be leading and that we do periodically throughout the year called Newcomer's Orientation. So if you're new to our church, uh, then I'd encourage you to take that for those four weeks. It doesn't obligate you to join our church. We don't hassle you after you've attended it, but it does give you a good amount of information about who we are and what our philosophy is and our beliefs. And you can ask any questions you might have as well. So please mark that down for those four weeks for those of you that are new. And then you see December 1st, that's a Saturday at 10 a.m. at our house. A few times throughout the year, we have a newcomer's brunch at our place. If you've never been to one of our brunches, even if you've been around for a while and you just haven't been able to uh, schedule it to attend one of the prior ones, We would love to have you at that as well. We do need to know who's coming, though, or at least how many are coming for food planning. So let the folks at the information center desk in the lobby know about that and uh, uh, let them know and they'll put you on the list. Last one that I'll mention is December 7th is the ladies Christmas social. And I mention it because that also requires uh, some sign up. And that is for ladies who are willing to host one of the 24 tables that they will have for that. So ladies, if you're interested in hosting, uh, you can indicate that at the kiosk that's in the resource center as well. All right, today, can anyone be sure that he's going to heaven? And I say at the top of the first page, Martin Luther, who sparked the Protestant Reformation in 1517, said justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. You see there's a footnote there that says the precise quote is a little bit different, but that a few years later someone paraphrased it to that, and that's what stuck with us. Justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. In particular, the Reformation taught the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works based on passages like Romans 3.28, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, and many, and many others. All right. So some of you know uh, church history a bit. Last year was the 500th anniversary of the 
Protestant Reformation. It was October 31. So there's actually something even better to celebrate on October 31st. And that is the beginning of the Reformation. 1517, so 2017 was the 500th anniversary of that. Last fall on our in our Bible Institute, Community Institute on Wednesday nights, I taught a class for the whole semester on the Reformation. Uh, so there was you know, a lot of talk last year about the Reformation, in particular because it was the 500th anniversary. Some of you know that, and you know the, the history behind that, and others, others of you may not. But this issue of justification was central to the Reformation. And the Reformation was a movement of Christians to reform, thus the name Reformation, to reform the church. To change it because it was not teaching justification by faith alone. And Martin Luther came to realize that the Bible does teach that. The church is not. And therefore, there's going to need to be a radical change. And what happened as a result of that was a splintering. Because the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, refused and refuses uh, to this day to, to budge on that issue. Now, in the wake of the beginning of the Reformation, a few decades after the Reformation um, started, Luther starts it in 1517, from the years 1546 to 1563, 1546 to 1563. Uh, So you've got a 17-year period in which a council, a Roman Catholic council, met periodically over those 17 years. That council was known as the Council of Trent, T-R-E-N-T, the Council of Trent. And Trent issued, the Council of Trent issued a number of decrees as part of its work. And these were all in response to the Reformation, to people like Martin Luther and then John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and others. Let me read for you what some of those decrees were and still are. What I'm going to read for you is still dogma, that is, authoritative teaching that must be believed. That's what dogma is. It's authoritative teaching from the church that must be believed by the faithful. This is still binding teaching. came from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Anathema means accursed. Let him be damned. It really means let that person go to hell. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be damned, let him be anathema. goes on to say, if anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary for salvation, but are superfluous 
And that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification. Though all the sacraments are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured out, poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God. If anyone says that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. And it could go on. Now, the decrees of Trent are still binding. How do I know they're still binding? They're quoted in the most recent official catechism of the, the Catholic Church. 1994, an updated catechism. And if you, I've got a copy of it. It's about that thick. And what it teaches about justification and works as necessary to salvation and all of that is all in there. Footnoted copiously including footnotes from the the Council of Trent. So that's still binding. And that's the history behind then what I say on page one. Luther saying justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And in particular, the Reformation taught justification by faith alone. And that was over against what was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church. So this issue of justification is apparently a really big deal. And justification apart from what you do. So what is justification then? Justification is, in the Bible, a declaration. That's the word you you really want to get when you see justification. It's a declaring. It's God the judge making a declaration about us the sinner. And on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus... God, the righteous judge, declares us to be righteous before him, justified before him. Forgive the grammar, even though we ain't. That is, even though we're still sinners. God declares us to be righteous because he looks at us when we come to Christ now through the perfect life of Jesus. That's what justification is. Declaration of righteousness on the part of God who is the righteous judge for us. Now that ought to be something that's very precious to you. That God looks at you through the perfect life of Jesus if you've come to him. Because if he's looking at you through your life, guess what? You're in big trouble. And so am I. And so that's what's at the heart then of this question, can anyone be sure he's going to heaven? I say in the middle of the first paragraph, if salvation is based on what we do, then we can never know for sure that we're going to heaven since we will not know whether we've done enough or well enough until the judgment. I mean, think about that. How will you know if you've measured up? How will you know if you've done enough? How will you know whether or not there are not in the recesses of your heart somewhere some sin that you're harboring, some attitude that you're harboring that's contrary to the character of God that is not his perfect holiness and therefore you're not going to get in? What a miserable way to live the Christian life. Not knowing 
if you're going to be with your father forever. So whether one can be sure of heaven is related to how we're saved and how we remain saved. So we're going to look at those issues in the notes that follow. One of the questions then that comes out of this is, is salvation eternally secure? Is the person who has been declared righteous by God, been justified by God, when they come to Jesus, is that person secure in that eternally, forever? And I say here, when one comes to Jesus Christ, believing who he is and what he has done for us, his sins are forgiven. The Bible says when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So you have two things that get applied to you at the moment you come to Jesus Christ, believing who he is and what he's done on your behalf. One is this perfect life that he lived of no sin, absolute righteousness. That gets applied to you so that God can declare you to be righteous even though you're not on the basis of the life of Jesus. That's one. But the second thing is the death of Jesus on the cross that pays the penalty for your sin. His perfect life gives you perfect righteousness before God. His death on the cross gives you full payment for all of your sins, past, present, and future. You put both of those together, and now you've got something that lasts forever. All of your sins have been for, have been forgiven. And middle of that paragraph, the Bible says, as we saw from Psalm 32 this morning, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will. Will you please note this word? Never count against them. And you notice that's quoted in Romans chapter 4. It's a quote from Psalm 32 that we saw in our first hour, but it's quoted in your New Testament in Romans chapter 4. And the Lord will never count sin against those who have been justified in, in Jesus. This means that sins committed after we place our faith in Christ do not end our relationship with him, and so do not bar us from heaven. You see, a lot of people have this idea that when you come to Christ, what's forgiven are the things you did in the past. But the idea that your sins that are still prospective still in the future are forgiven, is foreign to a lot of people. But that is, in fact, what happens. He forgives our sins, not just past, but present and and future as well. So for those people who believe that, you come to Christ, he forgives what you've done in the past, now you have sort of a clean slate, let's start over and let's see how you do. That's a conditional kind of a probationary approach to salvation. Let's see how you do. And let's see when you stand before the pearly gates and the judgment whether or not you've done done well enough. That's the mindset that many have. It's not, most certainly not what the Bible teaches. That last sentence, remember this, when Christ died for our sins, all of them were still future. You get that? <laughs> so every sin you ever committed was still future when Jesus died for you. He died for all of your sin, past, present, and future, Relative to his death is what matters, not relative to the time that you committed them. In addition, 
When we come to Christ, we're giving, given something called eternal life. The Bible says that a number of places. Whoever believes in him in the famous John 3.16 shall not perish, but have eternal life. By definition, eternal life cannot be for, forfeited once it's given because eternal life is not eternal unless it really is eternal. <laughs> Sorry to be pedantic there. That's actually a very close quote from a book that I read when I was 19. The first book that I ever spent my own money on because I wanted to buy it as opposed to the school made me buy it or college made me buy it. Buy this book. And in this book, Answering the Tough Ones, it's answering this question, can anyone be sure? And it's making this point about eternal life. And it's got this line that eternal life is only eternal if it really is eternal. How dumb that sounds. But it was, it was I hate to be over dramatic about it, but it was life-changing for me. You know why? Because I grew up in a church that taught you could lose your salvation. I grew up in a church that taught it's not eternal. And I read that and I go, duh. How long is eternal? So once you got it, how long does it last? And that was, that was precisely, precisely what I needed. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he went on to explain that that eternal life begins not when we get to heaven, but as soon as we receive him as Savior. This is Jesus talking. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So, is our salvation eternally secure? If these two things are true, then I'm going to tell you then it's absolutely the case that salvation is eternally secure. Here are the two things. If eternal life is a present possession, that's number one. Does the Bible teach that eternal life is something you have in the present? You all see the verses we have quoted there? You see the tense that's being used there? Has eternal life, right? So if eternal life is a present possession, that's one. And secondly, if eternal lasts forever, if those two things are true, and they are, then eternal security must be true. When someone comes to Jesus believing who he is and what he has done for us, that person is given eternal life. They have it. They have it at that point. What I came to realize was that the church I grew up in implicitly taught that eternal life begins after you die. And I found over the years that's what most people mistakenly believe. Eternal life begins after you die. It doesn't begin now in their minds. But the Bible teaches eternal life begins now at the moment you receive Christ. And then... By definition, it lasts forever. If both of those things are true, then it is absolutely the case that eternal security is true as well. Once you have come to Christ, you have that forever. Bottom of page one, are we able to maintain our relationship with God? Our salvation is based on God's ability, not ours. He saved us. 
not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is a fancy term of giving spiritual life. He gave us spiritual life when we were spiritually dead. In other words, God did the saving. It's not something we do anything to get or to keep. We receive it. So, since it cannot be forfeited, since it's eternal life, since you're eternally secure if you've come to Christ, since it cannot be forfeited, it also cannot be maintained. I just want you to think about that for a minute. I can't forfeit it. I can't lose it. So, therefore, I don't have to do something to maintain it. You don't keep yourself saved. Which is what those who fail to believe in eternal security actually teach. You have to live well enough to keep yourself saved. Anybody want to sign up for that? And see, the only way you can sign, the only way you can sign up for that is if you do one of two things or both. One is if you lower God's standard. You can sign up for that if you lower God's standard. What do you think God's standard is for letting somebody into heaven? We're going to see in the notes in a bit, but that turns out to be perfection. So in order for you to do this thing, I'm going to maintain it. There's the possibility that I'll lose it, but but I can maintain it. I can live well enough. In order for you to believe that, you have to lower God's God's standard to something other than perfection. And secondly, you have to redefine what sin is. You have to redefine sin as something other than the Bible teaches. Now, here's what I mean. People who believe you can maintain your salvation by living well enough, by living good enough, Those people have redefined sin so that sin is just certain things you do, certain big things you do. If you talk to people who believe that, and I've talked to many of them, family members, good friends, so what do I have to do to lose it? Oh, something big. I mean, you can't just lose it over anything. You know, you just got, you got to, you got to kill somebody, you got to. You know, something. I mean, even that can be forgiven, but it's got to be you know, something big and something you've, you know, really done with a high hand, closed fist toward God, something like that. But does the Bible make those kind of distinctions? Now, Roman Catholicism does. So you see, this is Roman Catholic teaching that's being taught by Protestants. Because Roman Catholicism has two categories of sins. Do you all remember that? Mortal sins and venial sins. It's mortal sins that can that deal you a mortal death blow, thus the word mortal, mortality, to your spiritual life that will bar you from, from going to heaven. So there's certain kinds of things you can do. So in order to believe that you can lose your salvation, conversely, that you have to maintain your salvation, you've got to do a couple of things. You've got to lower God's standard from perfection to something less. God will accept you doing your best. And you've got to redefine sin as willful acts, big willful acts, something like that. How does the Bible define sin? 
Well, the Bible defines sin as not just the things you commit, but the, th- the things you do, but the things you say, right? We sin not on just our actions, but in our words. We sin not just in our actions and our words, we sin in our thoughts according to the Bible. True? Ah, but it's worse than that. Those are just sins of commission, things we commit by our thoughts and our words and our deeds. But then there is this whole other category of sins of omission. Yikes. (laughs) The things that I'm supposed to think and say and do that I don't. The Bible says for anyone who knows the good that he ought to do and fails to do it, to him it is what? Sin. That's sins of omission. Listen, guys and gals, you start to add that up, you can't add that up in your lifetime. There's no way you can atone for that. There's no way you can make up for that. So you're going to have to lower God's standards so that God accepts something less than perfection or you're going to have to redefine sin. And that's what those who say you can lose your salvation do. I grew up in a church that believed that. Age 19, you know, I bought this book. I was having some struggles with all of that. I had determined that once you are a Christian and you've trusted Jesus, you are that forever. He gives you eternal life. The Bible teaches that. And I went to my pastor. And I said to him, hey, I'm having some struggles with this. And the Bible... I'm convinced now, teaches eternal security. And I said to him in the course of making my presentation that, listen, we all sin every day. And he says, speak for yourself. I'm not making this up. Speak for yourself. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, you know Smokey says, well, that was a sin right there, you know, but... I'm only 19. I'm, you know, I'm just listening. And he says, uh, he says, speak for yourself. Now, this is a quote. I have not sinned a willful sin in 35 years. Now, notice a willful sin in 35 years. You see how he's redefined sin, though? For him, it's something high hand toward God. It's not the thoughts. It's not the omissions. It's not any of that. And so he's got this two categories of sins, and he's able to maintain it by redefining what sin is. The only way you can do it is to lower God's God's standard and to redefine what sin is. So are we able to maintain our relationship with God? The answer to that would be no. And the good news is we don't need to do that. Illustration on top of page two, when a child is small, they may hold, she may hold her father's finger in her hand, but he can hold her whole hand with his fingers. When she falls, as she inevitably will, she cannot hold his finger tightly enough to keep herself from falling, but he can hold onto her hand tightly enough to keep her up. The fact that she does not fall depends on her father, not her, so it is with God. He keeps us from falling out of our eternal relationship with himself. When we receive him, we become children of God, and God does not disinherit his children. We are children, says Romans 8. And we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I just want you to let that sink in, that last phrase, co-heirs with Christ. How long will you be an heir of God? As long as Jesus is. How long will that be? You see that? Co-heirs with Christ. 
The Bible says he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded how? By your ability? By God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So one of the things, you, if you're going to answer this question, can anyone be sure that he's going to heaven, is you've got to get this issue of, is my salvation, my relationship with God, a matter of what I do or a matter of what Jesus has done? If it's a matter of what Jesus has done, the Bible teaches you receive that by believing in who Jesus is and what he has done. And when that happens, he gives you eternal life. He declares you righteous before him, even though you're not. He forgives your sin, past, present, and future. All of that is given to you by the grace of God when you come believing who Jesus is and what he did. And then from there, you're going to heaven. Eternal life is given to you. It's a present possession and it lasts forever. So here's another question that people ask. Isn't it too easy for people to get to heaven just by simply receiving Christ? Since we all know that everything has a price tag, it's a little wonder that many struggle with the idea that salvation could be freely given. It certainly seems unreasonable that someone like Ted Bundy should get off scot-free by just believing in Christ. The reason that nobody has his sins erased, they reason, I should say, that nobody has his sins erased by believing. However, Jesus Christ paid the price for the sins of those who believe in him. He paid in full. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was not easy. How easy would it be to send your only child to die for someone else's crimes? It's true, it takes a lot more than belief. It requires the extremely costly payment for our sins by Christ on the cross. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The wages of sin of death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm trying to march through some of the rationale that people believe, uh, maintain for believing that you can lose your salvation. And I heard it for years and years as a child and a young adult, and I've continued to, to hear it uh, for many years thereafter. And so this, this is the kind of, of thinking that goes on. Wait a minute, that's just too easy. Well, listen, ain't nothing easy, ain't nothing easy about what Jesus did for us. Extremely costly, infinitely costly, free to you, costly to him. Further, in that kind of reasoning, people will say, I had this said to me many times over the years when I was a kid. You know, I was being taught at my Christian school. See, that's what messed everything up for me. That's why I'm so neurotic. That's why I'm so messed up. I mean, I'm in this Pentecostal church and I went to this Baptist school and I'm trying to figure all this out. So I'm asking these questions of my youth group, you know, and, hey, isn't salvation a free gift? And then the retort would be, uh, in my Pentecostal church, yeah, but gifts can be returned. And then as a dumb teenager, I'm going, yeah, that's right. A gift, it's a gift can be returned, you know. Every gift, you know, I get, we buy gifts at Christmas, you keep the receipt, right? Get a gift receipt. In case they hate your stupid gift and they take it back, Right? So a gift can be, it's a gift, but what does that prove? 
A gift can be given back. And it wasn't until years later that I go, well, okay, that's true of most gifts. But is it true of every gift that every gift can be can be given back, can be given back to the giver even? You know, I mean, just the, you give life. You know, you have a child. You give the gift of life to somebody. How are, you gonna, how are they going to give that back to you? Or let's say you give a, a, a bone marrow transplant to someone. And they decide later they don't want it. How do you get, you see the nat- the point is the nature of the gift is such that it doesn't come with a gift receipt. The, all the other gifts we're talking about are not eternal gifts. But eternal life by the nature of the gift cannot come with a receipt and cannot be given back because of the kind of gift that it is. All right, middle of page two, here's another question that People ask about this. Why should very bad people go to heaven as easily as good people? If you're stuck on the question of wicked people so easily going to heaven, we need to realize that we too are in need of Christ's payment such that we cannot earn salvation ourselves. The Bible says even our righteous deeds outside of Christ, that would be our like a filthy garment in the sight of God. There is none righteous, not even one, before coming to Christ. We must realize that we cannot do the work that pays the price of our sins. Some things are like that. We could not do the work necessary to perform our own brain surgery, no matter how much we needed it. It would be, have to be carried out by somebody else. The mechanics of signing the paper, allowing the surgeon to do it, might be easy, but that does not mean the surgery would be easy to do or worthless to have done. At times, it's not a good idea to reject something just because it's free and easy to receive. And the Bible says salvation is like that. Now, how Do I get to be good? That is, top of page three, how good does God want me to be? And this gets to that redefining God's standard that I mentioned earlier. God's just going to have to, instead of requiring perfection, he's going to have to require good enough, you doing your best, which is what most people believe. I try to live a good life. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed any of these big mortal sins. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to put my spiritual resume before him and tell him all the good things I've done and hopefully I've done good enough. That's the way most people think of it. Matthew 5, 48. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a quote. There's your standard. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect. Okay, so how good does God want me to be? Top of page 3. God requires perfection. He told Abraham that he needed to be blameless. God told Israel through Moses, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The context of Jesus words is the importance of having righteousness. And later on, the apostle Peter reminded the early church that God had said through Moses, you shall be holy for I am holy. God's standard never falls short of complete righteousness and holiness. Anything less than perfection is sin. Sin causes suffering because heaven is a place of no suffering. It must also be a place of no sin. Not just a place of not much sin or a place for people who tried hard not to sin. If suffering's to be done away with, sin must be eliminated, not just minimized. If we suppose God will accept the better people of this world, those with the least amount of sin, we're still asking God to accept sin. An unbroken window is not simply one with unbroken spots 
in it. Those who believe God should accept them because they are relatively good have not taken a close look at themselves. And then we go on to talk about how many sins a person might commit even in a particular day. Do you all remember this story in Matthew chapter 19 of a young man coming to Jesus? Matthew chapter 19. And here's this question. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question to Jesus. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And here's Jesus' response to him. Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God. Now that, to me at least, at first blush, seems like a curious response. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And you, you know, the response would be nothing. Okay? But Jesus says this. Jesus goes after the premise of his question. Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Why are you calling me good? Jesus says there's no one good except God. He's challenging the premise that there's something good that that kid could do. Why? Because the kid is not God. There's no one good except God. And guess what? You're not God. So I just answered your question. But nevertheless, the story goes on. Jesus says, keep the commandments. And then the young man says, well, I've got that. I've covered that. I've kept all of these since I was a kid. Jesus says, you've done well. Good for you. Now go and sell what you have. And the Bible says he went away sorrowful because he was wealthy. Now, do you know what Jesus did in saying, sell what you have? He, he was showing this young man. First of all, he showed him you're not good. Therefore, there's no good thing you can do. And then he shows him, you think you've kept the commandments, but oh, you haven't. Because the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods except me, before me. And guess what? You've got a God called your possessions, your wealth. So you're not good. And so you need something. And someone outside of yourself. So how do I get to be good? Middle of page three. The second crucial factor in this issue is that God made perfection available as a free gift. By dying on the cross, Jesus Christ, quote, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. As we've seen, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We swap our sins for Christ's perfection. At that specific time in history, God was in Christ, reconciling him the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So, no matter who we are or how bad and how bad we've been, our sins are no longer the issue in beginning our relationship with God. The only issue involved is what we do about Jesus Christ. And then you have an example there from a criminal who receives a pardon. Top of page four. If we are concerned about how relatively good or bad we are, we need to realize that our sins no longer have anything whatsoever to do with beginning a relationship with God. That's what the Bible means when it says we're being offered salvation on the basis of grace, 
unmerited favor. Do you remember when I read at the beginning those anathemas from the Council of Trent? And one of those is, if anyone says that grace is simply the undeserved favor of God, let him be anathema. Remember that? But that is indeed what it is. It's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. So it's salvation is on the basis of that grace and that mercy, unmerited non-condemnation. That is, we deserve condemnation, but God in his mercy doesn't give it to us. Mankind is being offered a pardon, and that pardon is Jesus Christ, and he, who he is and what he has done, is the only issue before us. Now, the last question here is, all right, if all that's true, and you got this free gift, then why not just receive Jesus and then live as bad as you can? Sounds like a good deal. Take this free gift and party. And that was an argument that I heard as a kid all the time. You know, those people who believe once saved, always saved. That's the phrase for eternal security. Once saved. Those people who believe that believe you can live any way you want. And as a kid, that made sense to me. Because that's what I would do. Give me that, I'll live however I want. And then I go off to this Baptist school. And there's these people who believe in once saved, always saved, and eternal security, and they're the most dedicated Christian people I've ever seen. And I'm thinking to myself, why are these people so dedicated? They're already going to heaven. Why not enjoy the world's delights? Why not live like the world? Why not? You're already going to heaven. But they're not doing that. And it was years later that it dawned on me, oh, when God gives you this gift, when he gives you, in effect, the bone marrow transplant of eternal life. He changes you. So that you get to do whatever you want to do. But what you want to do has changed. And that's what we have on page four. If Christianity were only a religion made up by people, the question, why not become a Christian, live as bad as you can, that would be legitimate. Expecting people to get better just because they prayed a prayer makes no more sense than pardoning all convicts and expecting them to become model citizens. We would certainly ask, how do we know they won't just accept the pardon and live as bad as they can? But with salvation, there's one big difference. It's from God, not man. When we receive Christ, God comes into us and changes us from the inside out. That's why the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Then, too, there is the fact that receiving Christ makes you part of God's family, and God takes care of his family. The author of Hebrews says, God deals with you as, as you as with sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So if you do sin, you do stray from God, he will lovingly discipline you. Being in a good family generally motivates people to be part of what that family stands for. And so it is with the family of God. Can anyone be sure he's going to heaven? You can be sure you're going to heaven if that surety, if that security is not based on you, but based upon Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for you. Now. We've got about a minute and a half. In that minute and a half, I don't know everybody in here. And I don't know whether everybody in here has had a time where they have received the gift, the free gift of salvation from the hand of God with the empty hands of faith. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. That's it. 
And you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and you're a sinner through and through like I am. Thought, word, and deed. Thoughts, words, and deeds that I'm supposed to do that I fail to do. You have no hope of atoning for that yourself. Zero. But the gospel, the good news is Christ has done what we couldn't do. He lived the life that we were made to live and he died the death that we were supposed to to have. He paid the penalty on our behalf. And it's offered to you as a free gift. So do you recognize that you're a sinner? And do you recognize that that sin, whatever your quantity compared to my quantity, doesn't matter. It's not God's perfection and therefore will banish you from God's heaven forever. Banish you to the eternal penitentiary of the damned that the Bible calls hell. And the only hope that you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive by believing who he is and what he did. Do you believe that God came to earth as man and that the God-man lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness? No sin. So that that righteousness can be given to you, a righteousness you don't have on your own. And do you believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, past, present, and future? Do you believe that about him? And do you believe that you absolutely need that? Because you're a sinner and you can't do it yourself. If so, we're going to pray here in a moment. And as we pray, you speak to God from your heart. You don't have to speak out loud. You speak to God from your heart. God can hear your heart. And you acknowledge to him, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I sin in ways I don't even realize. There's no way that I can pay for my own sin. I thank you that God came to earth in Jesus Christ. And he paid the penalty for my sin. I need the righteousness that only he can give. I ask you to save me. You receive that gift by believing. You express that belief to him like that. In your own words to God. And in that blessed moment now, you can be given eternal life. How long does eternal last? Can you be sure you're going to heaven? Yeah, because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Christ. Friend, if you've done that, let's bow and thank God. And if you haven't, I urge you urgently to do that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this time to consider the gift of salvation and the beauty of the gospel of grace. Lord, our natural inclination is to believe that there's something we must do. Worse, that there's something we can do. To believe that there's something we can do means we don't recognize who we are. We don't recognize how sinful we are before you. That in truth, we can never, ever, ever make up for the sin that we have committed. And because we're sinners, we will continue to sin even in trying. And so, Lord, we don't recognize who we are, but your word tells us who we are. It tells us very clearly how we sin in so many ways that they can't be counted. Lord, we don't believe the right things about ourselves and we don't believe the right things then about you and your holiness that you will not accept good enough. You will not accept our best shot at it. 
No one will go to heaven without the absolute perfection that your holiness requires. So, Lord, help us to believe rightly about who we are as sinners. Help us to believe rightly about who you are as a holy God. Then help us to believe rightly about what we've done to bring those together. In the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life of righteousness, who died a substitutionary death, not for his sake, not for his sin, he had none, but but for our sin. And you offer us that in your grace for the asking. Oh God, the Holy Spirit, move on the hearts of some here who have never understood the gospel of grace and draw them to yourself. Cause them to see who they are and who you are and that Jesus is their only hope. And then those of us who have done that, help us to live lives that are worthy of, of the calling that we have received. We're not worthy, but help us to live lives that are consistent with that calling, that we love it, that we love the one who gave it to us, and that we live in a way that represents you to a watching world in an accurate fashion. Lord, we can't do that on our own either. And so we ask you to help us this week to do that in the various places that you've assigned to us, to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.